I want to get started straight in. My, uh, just to say, my wife and I came to Europe about, about 21 years ago when nobody, Europe I mean, you guys, you're UK, Europe, um, you've made that very clear. <laughs> Let's not go there anymore. Um, in Europe, and we were told it's the dark continent, that over there, it's just, a, it's just a mess, nothing's happening, nothing's growing. We thought that'd be a great place to start. We're church planters by nature, that's all we've ever done. We started a couple of churches in Australia, a Bible college, which today now is about a thousand students, and we started a church in Denmark, or my wife did, and started working with church planters. I love that facet of working at the coal face of church life. And uh, when we came to Europe, 21 years ago, to be honest, it was horrible. It wasn't good church. But over time, in the last 20 years, God has done so much work, especially in young people, and now you can go to almost any city, sometimes even villages in nations, and you'll see a thriving, contemporary, growing church, just in 20 years. Can you imagine what the next 20 will be like? I think it's going to be fascinating. And uh, I want you to watch very carefully. I believe the next European country to go is Germany. Give it another 10 years. Already the foundations are happening in Germany of a wonderful move of God. We've seen churches planted in Germany in the last year or two that have only really been planted 18 months and are already four, five, six hundred. This is fascinating stuff when you think that when you planted a church 20 years ago, you were lucky if you got 80 people after 10 years. Things are different now. So I'm looking forward to the future. Anyway, let me get started. I want to read in a moment a passage from Colossians chapter 2. But as you know, when you, when you open up the Bible and any book in the New Testament, or for that matter, there's always a context, isn't there? There's a background, some sort of thing that's going on that the author is writing to. And in Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Paul has a number of contexts, but certainly one of the main ones was this group of people that had influ 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 got into the church uh, called, called the Gnostics. And these Gnostics were a part of church life and all around the church. Of course, 2,000 years later, we've had time and, and we've had doctrine and theologies come to systematize what we believe. So there's less probability today of these things happening than there was then. There was a lot of stuff going on in the early church that we never would embrace today because they were forming this thing. And these, these Gnostics were in the church. Now, the word Gnostic is older than the word agnostic. The word agnostic is a new word, but it comes from the word Gnostic. Gnostic spelt G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic. The G is silent. Anyway, so the word Gnostic means to know. The word agnostic means I don't know. And uh, we get the word agnostic from the word Gnostic. Now, these Gnostics were quite strange people, really, in many ways, certainly on one side of the coin. They had two issues, really. The first issue was a theology. And their theology was about God and his nature and how he influenced the earth. They said that God is all pure, all perfect, and an absolute being. No problem there. But any moment God started to influence the world or touch earth, then his emanations, as they were called, the emanations of God, became more impure because the world affected God's nature. So these emanations, by the time they reached the earth, were impure. So they said basically this, Jesus could not have been the Son of God in his purest form, Emmanuel, God with us, 
because he was affected by the nature of the earth so that he was impure, really, a good man, but certainly not God. Well, we've heard that one before. But that doesn't, you know, the word Gnostic doesn't define their theology. Often when you hear a person's theology, the, the name is attached to the theology. Interestingly, the word Gnostic was applied to how they won their debates when they had a debate about this theology. See, the Gnostic was quite smart because what they would say is as they were arguing or debating or talking with another Christian, they would say something like this. Yeah, but our theology is right because I know this thing and you don't know it yet. When you have a revelation and you know what I know, then you'll know the truth. Isn't it easy to win a debate on that one? You know, they win the debate on, well, it doesn't matter what truth is, really, as long as I personally feel it, as long as I personally know it, that's good enough for me. And you might say, well, Gnosticism has not influenced the church today in any way, shape, or form, and it's not a big problem to us. I want to help you here. It's a massive problem today. Maybe not its theology, but certainly the way it works. There are so many people today who will tell you what I feel is more true than what is a fact. We've seen that in politics. We've seen democratic elections take place where people say, but my feelings are true, not what happened. What I feel is more real to me than the truth of the moment. We see that in church when Christians will come and <clears throat> say, um, I, I feel God has told me to do this and God has asked me to do the other thing. And when you unpack that biblically and truth comes on the scene, yes, but it's what I feel that is more important than what I know. Hello. This is a big dilemma today. It's not getting better. It's getting worse to the point now where people are offended by if you do speak truth into the feeling. They're offended that you have upset my truth, which is a feeling. So <clears throat> whilst Gnosticism may not be real to us in terms of the theology, it certainly is in the way people appropriate it. So with that in mind, now let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. And we've got it on the, or 6, we've got it on the screen here. I'm going to read straight from there. So with this in mind, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Am, am I needing glasses or is that a bit fuzzy? Uh, it's good to know. I thought it's getting worse and worse now. I have to use them for reading. Now I can't read the screens. But it's good to know it's the, the screen issue. How many don't even see that because you're perfect eyesight? It's just, is it just me? You too, thank you. Okay, and you have been taught abounding in it with thanksgiving. Look what he says there. You have received him. You walk in him. You're rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. I want to read it to you from the Message Bible, which is a more modern translation. I love what this says. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Just go ahead with what you've been given. You have received Christ Jesus the Master, now live in Him. You are deeply rooted in Him. You are well constructed upon Him. You know, you know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School is out. Quit studying the subject, blogging about it, Facebook, oh sorry, that's not there, and start living it. <coughs> and let your living spill over into thanksgiving. That's how Paul addresses this. Let's start unpacking these verses very carefully. Here's the first thing he says, you have received Christ. 
Now, this is important to understand what that one means. When you're dealing with the theology they had, but also how we appropriate what Jesus has done for us. What I love about this idea is you have received him. You have received him. He doesn't receive me. See, if he has to receive me, I've, been, I've got to be good enough for him to receive. Biggest mistake of religion today is that has been reversed. So I have to be right so God can receive me. So I have to pray a certain way, do certain things, pay certain things, behave a certain way. You've heard people say, I would never come to church because the roof would fall in. This sort of idea that I'm not good enough for God, which doesn't say much about the engineering of this building, by the way. I think they've done a great job. The roof will not fall in if you come here. But the idea is that it's me-centered rather than him-centered. See, I have received him, what he's done on the cross. I have received the work of Jesus into my life. I have received the grace that he's given to me. I have received the work that he did so that I could be right with God, not what I've brought. He has provided it all. All I need to do is receive it. Isn't that fantastic? <clears throat> to be honest, that should be a revelation or at least a great moment of thanksgiving because he says we should be thanking him in all this. Why? Because I have no works to provide. I have nothing to do. This is the essential ingredient of the gospel. I received what he did. What does that mean when we receive him? What does it actually imply? Well, I believe it's about giving up control mainly. It's not about things I do or the way I think, but basically if you take some examples from New Testament, you'll discover when it comes to receiving what Jesus did, it's about letting go of something. For example, Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He was a Pharisee plus Sanhedrin. Now, the Pharisees were already pretty committed people, policemen of the state, following everything up, making sure you did not violate the rules of Jewish, Jewish culture and, and legality. And then he was a Sanhedrin as well, which was 70 people picked from the crowd of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It doesn't matter, but he's a very busy guy. He's at the top echelons of power. He comes to Jesus by night. I've heard many preachers say he came to by night because he was afraid of being seen by his friends. I think he came by night because he was really busy. He was a Sanhedrin. Now, I know this probably be true because Nicodemus featured in Jesus' life three more times. He was the guy who provided all the spices for Jesus' burial. He wasn't afraid of what Jesus was about. He was just a committed guy. He comes to Jesus and he says, what do I have to do to understand who you are and what you are? Jesus says this, you need to be born again. Now that word, born again, was used for Nicodemus, but it's been sort of implied a little bit about us guys, hasn't it? That we're called the born again happy clappies. Are you not, you maybe not here? Yeah, oh, you have that? Okay, yeah, are you born again happy clappies? A guy came to my wife's church and he said, the young man, and he said to me, oh, you're just born again, happy clappies. And I just sort of went off at him and my wife said later, you know, we're trying to build a church here, not chase people away. <laughs> yeah, but born again, happy clappies. And then I thought, to, I said to this guy actually, well, what's the opposite? Dead, boring people, dead, depressed people. What's the, I'd rather be a born again, happy clappy than a dead, depressed person. He didn't get that either. So... <laughs> The truth is that Nicodemus, when, he, when Jesus said that, it, it does speak about us, but it's speaking to him. You need to start all over. See, you are in the highest power level you can be. You're in absolute control. You've got everything in control. You need to start all over and just be born again. You need to come as a little child. 
So what Nicodemus had to do was relinquish the control point. The two thieves on the cross. There's one thief who's in control. He is shouting and abusing Jesus. He's still in control as a thief. The other thief lets go of control and says, why are you persecuting this good man? He's let go of control. Jesus turns to that thief without any gospel preach, without any word about how it works, and says, you will be in paradise with me today. You let go of something. The rich, young, wealthy uh, young man who came to Jesus, and he said, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus said, you need to, uh, get, you need to, oh, you need to observe all you know, the laws and regulations we've set. He said, I've done that all my life. So Jesus went one step further, and he said, then you need to sell all that you have and let it go. And the rich, young, wealthy uh, man walked away and said, I can't do that. Now, here's where we make the mistake, I think, as Christians. We often use that and say, see, if you've got a lot of money, you can't get in the kingdom. That's not what happened here. Imagine if I came before I was a Christian, and I was a card-playing fanatic. I loved to play cards, whatever it was. And it was my control point. I become a Christian, and Jesus says, just let go of that. Just give it up and receive me. So I let go. Guess what I do next time I preach to you guys? Cards are bad. I was a card-playing, gin-sucking guy, and now I left cards. You guys need to give up cards. That's what we do. Jesus is specific, individual, and to your point. What I have to let go of and what you need to let go of are two different things. We don't imply them on everyone. And there's that let go. I don't know what your let go point is, what your control point is. If you're here for the first time, you're a visitor here today, maybe you're away from God, there's a control point. Sometimes it's pride, sometimes it's ego, sometimes it's subtle things in our human psyche. Sometimes it's bigger things, sometimes it's external things, sometimes they're things we can see, sometimes they're things we can't see, but you know what they are. And when you let go and receive Him, it's not an emotion, it's not, it's not even so much what I know except what I let go. What I know is something I'll learn as time goes on, but I don't need to know it all before I let go of it all. I just need to let go. And maybe you're here today, and in your world and in your life, you need to let go. I encourage you before the service ends to make that moment yours and say, I let go, and I want Jesus in. The second thing he says is, I've walked in him. I love this because as soon as you receive him, he gives direction to you. Isn't it amazing how Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and weary and I'll give you rest. And we get there, and we fall down, and we say, this is awesome. And then he says, now, Nick, clear off, go on. Go on, off you go. Yeah, but I just got here. Yeah, now go. Go into all the world. Yeah, but I just got here. I like what I'm doing. This is nice. Jesus, you're wonderful. I just rest in you. No, no, now you go. See, that's the opposite side of what he does. He brings you, and then he sends you. He brings you, then he sends you. And I want, I want to say this. The greatest thing about Christianity for me is the collective vision we get together to send us somewhere. You've already heard it today. You have already been to London and invested in a scenario down there where you went. You may not physically go there, but you went there with your money. You went there with your prayers. You went there with your uh, church vision. See, we are a people with direction now. <clears throat> if you haven't got any, get involved in this church. I'll tell you right now, there's plenty of direction in this church. There's, this, is, this building is not an end point. This building is a beginning point of a new period. It's not an end point. If you're going, well, finally we made it. You've missed the point. It's not finally we've made it. Now let's start and do something. That's the point because God brings direction. The next thing he says is this one. 
He says, walk in him. And then he says, you're rooted in him. You're rooted in him. I like this. This is organic. You know, when Jesus starts to, well, actually the whole New Testament is very organic or spontaneous, you might say. It's about agriculture. Jesus used those models. Paul uses those models. And this one's about going down because the truth is that all stuff that grows is dependent on the root system it has. Any fruit that's born is dependent on how far you've gone down. So it's not only the fruit, it's the root system as well. Getting planted and getting placed in the right thing, soil is so important. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a wife. She's Scandinavian, actually. She's actually Danish by blood. When we went to Denmark, it was primarily because we wanted to come to Europe, but we found ourselves in Denmark. Her parents are Danish, and and all her family are in Denmark, so it was quite a unique fit, although it wasn't the plan, really, to be honest. We would have gone just about anywhere to be in Europe. But she, by nature, is a Scandinavian design person, design freak. You know, eye for detail. She loves to, you know, one of those people when you leave the house for a while, which I do all the time, I'm on the road, you come home and everything's shifted again. Pictures are in another place. Cushions are moved. Chairs are not where they should be. Things have changed. What did you do that for? I can't sit down where I used to. Well, it looks better now, doesn't it? I come home, everything's changed. Design thing. That's good in the house. I'm okay with that. But now she's moved it to the garden. <laughs> this is not good. Now, the garden has generally been my responsibility. I've been the one who's chosen how the garden works because I'm the guy, you know. But unfortunately for me, I didn't know this, but some flowers don't look right with their colour. The colour doesn't get my eye. So now we don't buy flowers <coughs> based on how successful they'll be. We buy them based on the colour. Do you know what I did? I shouldn't say this, should I? But in November, <coughs> when I was passing through Amsterdam, I bought about 100 tulips of various colours and put them all through the garden while she was away. <laughs> in the springtime, all these flowers popped up. What the heck is that? That wasn't meant to be there. That purple doesn't go there. That red, I don't know. There must have been a whole lot of tulips just buried there. And up they've come, just, just for fun, just for fun. And um, she goes out and she's saying to me, this tree needs to be moved. No, that's a tree, you, do, you just don't, you don't move a tree. She said, no, I want it moved three meters that way. You can't, why? It's not right for the eye. Okay, so I do the thing you have to do to move a tree called Googling this. I Googled how to move a tree and this is what it said. <clears throat> you have to cut the root ball around the size of the canopy of the leaves. This tree, was not tall, but it was very wide. Thick trunk, certain type of tree. I don't know what it was, but I had to move it there. So I was out there hacking away around the canopy. The root ball is massive. It's bigger than the canopy of the tree. It was so heavy I couldn't move. And that's the amazing thing about design people. They're willing to tell you what to do, but they'll never help you do it. <laughs> is that, isn't that true? They, they're not interested. Can you give me a lift here? No, no, just move it there. And I was like, okay. So i got to move this massive tree. Then it said, you've got to get the soil right. If the soil's wrong, it won't grow. Then it said, you've got to water it in really well, consistently over a year. And then it said, you've got to stake it to the ground because, stake it in the ground because wind will affect the root ball when the new roots are going out. And if there's any movement, the tree will die. You'd be surprised how many trees I've killed in my life actually moving them. Which is why we have a saying in church, be planted in the house. I sort of get that now. I always thought it was just a good word that we had, like a slogan that we had about doing it right. But I've moved some trees, friends, and the cost of moving those, can I just say this, that tree died. 
I did everything Google told me to do. It died. We don't have that tree anymore. I told my wife, we've, we've lost a tree because of your eye. <laughs> we've lost a tree, a good tree, which costs a lot of money. And why would you pick yourself up of a scenario, then move over to another scenario with all the stuff it entails for family, life, and everything is? Be planted. It's a biblical idea. There's a reason for it. The rooting up of it all and moving it is so horrendous. The cost is great. There's a chance, and I've seen it myself, that you may not survive the uplift and change. Stay planted. Let your roots go down in Him. Let your roots be built in Him. And let it be a part of the house He's building. He had zeal for His house, it says of Jesus. So the roots go down in Him. I love how that works and that thought. So these Gnostics are starting to hear that it's about receiving him and what he's done rather than where he came from in the sense of how he's not God or maybe God. It's about receiving what he did. They've been told now you need to walk in him, now be rooted in him. Then he uses, he switches tact. Paul goes from one extreme to the, now be built up in him. This is a different word. It is technocratic. That one is spontaneous and organic. This one is technocratic. It's about structure, form, design. To be built up in something is different to being rooted in something. Notice the difference is built up. That one's going down. So now we go down into him, and now we're built up in him, like a building is built. You need an architect. You need a designer. You need structure and form, different thing. And I believe that's sort of how the church works. We're rooted in him, which is organic. And some people are very good at being rooted in Jesus, but not very good at being a part of the building. Some people are very good at being a part of the building, but often not very well rooted in him. See, the building is not me. The building is a collection of all of us. You and I are called bricks in the building. Cut stones that make it look good. I am a cut stone like you are a cut stone that's put in the building to make it look good. And my value and your value is not determined by what I carry, but where I fit in the building. Do you know, I read a report recently, and it said that if you buy a brick in London today, its value is about 87p. That's all it is, one brick. But if you take that brick and put it on a block of land in London with a whole lot of other bricks in a house, the value of the one brick goes from 87p to 127 pound. See, my value is not based on who I am rooted. It's based on who I am connected to. Your value is not based on who you are rooted. It's who you're connected to as a brick in the building of God's house. And when you're a part of that house and built up with him, your value increases. The gifts of the Spirit is a classic example. We have a, a very strange view of those, I think, in some ways. We have a tendency to say, I have a gift of God. Actually, I don't really have a gift of God. It's the person who needs what I carry gets the gift. If I have healing, it's not, I should be perfectly well, but sometimes people who have the gifts of healing are not perfectly well, and I'll tell you why, because the gift is not for them, it's for you. See, when I have a gift, it's for you. If I have a gift of prophecy, that's for you, not for me. I love these people, not really, who say all the time, I have a gift of, I have a gift that, I have a gift, God's given me this, and I think God has only given you that to use with connected people in your world. And that gift goes to them, it's not yours. It's almost like a badge of honor. See what I carry? No, no, it's see what I've given. See what you've received. But I have to be connected, because most, actually, 
Almost all the gifts are for inside the house. Paul writes that way. Start with the house first. This 1980s theology, marketplace apostolic ministry was great. But I think it was emphasized primarily because the house wasn't doing what it needed to do. So people took it out to the marketplace. But actually gifts of God are given to the house to build the house. And I think it's for us to be a part of a house where we're connected and provide value to that. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. I, I think some people think they are the picture. That me-centered, you know, we even have uh, reverse camera technology on our phone now. It's called a selfie. Isn't that amazing? We're, we're re re really reinforcing me. And if you don't get enough of me, and you can get a selfie stick. So you can get more of you in the picture. So we are very me-centered. And, and I think sometimes, like N.T. Wright rightly said, he said, most people think God floats around him, them, but the truth is we float around God. I think that's so true. And I think God's picture of a church is like a jigsaw puzzle. I think I'm the picture, but actually it's only when all the pieces are placed together in the right place that we get the full picture. And we see what God is building. I am a bit that goes up there and it fits in there. It can go nowhere else, just there, and it doesn't fit down there. I can't hammer it in somewhere else. I can't try and make it fit somewhere else. But if I'm not in there, that's what's missing. I don't know if you heard about a guy who completed a million-bit jigsaw puzzle. Million bits, massive thing. Now, he bought three of the boxes or containers of bits because he was concerned he might lose some on the way, so he had backup bits to complete the whole jigsaw puzzle. He completed the jigsaw puzzle, a million pieces, with one bit missing, and that bit wasn't in the other two boxes. Can you imagine when people walked in and saw that massive thing on the wall, what are they gonna say? That's great, where's that bit? That's what happens when we don't turn up for God's stuff in the house. That's great. Where's that bit? That's great. Where's so-and-so? That's great. Where's what's-her-name? That's great. Do you see what I mean? Because when we're all together, we complete the puzzle. Needless to say, of course, the company had to find that bit and finally got it and completed the picture. But see, we are not the picture. We are the jigsaw puzzle that's connected together and the pieces fit together to make the house look good. Let's be really honest, folks. If we want to attract people to God's presence and let them experience what we experience in this house, it takes every chair full because every chair brings atmosphere. Every person brings something. Every person has a gift to contribute. Every voice makes a sound. It emphasizes the nature and presence of God. Nothing worse than empty churches to entice people to. What's going on? See, even the presence of sitting in a chair makes a difference because we are being built up in him. So we have received him, we walked in him, we're rooted in him, and we're built up in him. And then the last thing he says here is we're established in faith. He takes a little different tack now, and he talks about being established in your faith. Now, this is interesting because all the rest was about him, and this one's about us. Here's the truth is once I've accepted him and his work in my life, I start the journey of faith. Sometimes we say the journey starts with faith, but the journey is always completed in faith. It may start in faith, but it's got to go all the way through your life. It's got to go, somebody asked me to do a conference, and they said to me, we'd love you to talk on, the, on a session that says, if you were 19, starting all over again, and got saved and went into a church, 
What would you like to ask them? What would you like to know when you're 19 or 17 in my case and you came into the church? And I thought, what a great question. I'm in the church, 17. What's the first question I want to know? In the first week of meeting Jesus, here's what I said. I'd like to know how I sustain good quality Christian life for 70 years. Don't tell me about the Trinity right now. Don't tell me about this right now. Just tell me how I get through the stuff of life because I want to be here in 70 years. Well, I haven't got that long as you can see. But when I finish my course, I want to be the guy up the front. In our church, I leaned over to my wife and said, all these young people, this is what it's all about. This is what we give to. I want to be the guy up the front in the walking chair, walking frame, maybe dribbling out the side of my mouth. It's coming closer and closer, I'm telling you. <laughs> Forgetting everybody's names, but I'm going to be the one, you know, up the front. I don't want to be the one down the back whinging about this and that and the other thing. I want to be as energetic for Jesus and his kingdom as I was when I started when I finish. That's what I, so, but here's the challenge. There's things that happen in my life that I can't explain, never asked for, and didn't think God would ever do. And guess what? I don't think God did any of them. Sometimes it's my stupidity. Sometimes it's just the nature of life. I'll tell you one thing. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Why do we think we're any better off? Here's the difference. John, uh, James put it this way. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You know, when you're outside walking in the sun, on the beach, you're disturbing no one and a seagull poos on the top of your head or on your shoulder. You think to yourself, what did I do to deserve this. A friend of mine was walking and talking about this. In fact, actually, another friend told me he wound down the car window about this much, and a seagull managed to plop one right through the side of the window. He can't figure that out. Hit him in the eye. He said, how does a bird do that? I said, I don't know. As we were, this is true, the Swedish guy, as we were talking about this, my friend put out his hand, and one landed right on his hand. And he said, there you go. What do you think of that? I said, just be glad elephants can't fly. That's all I'm saying. But isn't it true when you feel like an elephant has flown over the top of you, done its business on your head? You didn't expect that to happen. Those trials and experiences of faith are the things that make and break us. These people that should be here today, they're not, not because they're not received him or not rooted in him or not, but, but they didn't establish their faith. They didn't go through those things with a joy and an expectation. And I must admit, to be honest, the stuff that we've experienced in life, I don't know how we got through some of them. You don't want to hear my story. You've all got a story. The amazing thing about life is we've all got stories. Some are worse than others. But keeping and establishing your faith is the key. I want the musicians to come as I wrap this up. The musicians come to tell you basically it's time to get off the platform. In this case, I've invited them to tell me to get off the platform. And... Those things help us become people of faith. The long-term commitment to the journey. Well, Paul writes all this. He talks about receiving him. He talks about knowing, uh, walking in him. He talks about rooted, built up in him, establishing your faith. So much more could be said on these things. And then he wraps it up. Now remember, these guys who were called the Gnostics, they had a theology that he wanted to deal with. And look what he says after he's written all this. Look what he says in the verse 8 that follows this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, 
which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Read verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. We worship God in flesh. Jesus is the Son of God. Emmanuel, God with us. He is the great I Am. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is all the names of God. He is Jesus who represents God without impurity, without any other issues that these people came up with. He is God dwelling amongst us. And He is our fullness. That should bring something in your heart when you read something like that. Let's stand and sing, Joe.